Welcome everybody back to our podcast, Missives from the Future of Tech, Ladies Night Edition. I'm here today with my great friend, Coraline Ada and Keith. Hi everybody, really happy to be here. And to my left on Skype is the lovely and talented Jessica Kerr. Good morning. I am super excited about this show today because we have Janelle Klein as the guest again. And this is because a few weeks ago, we had Janelle on the show and we were supposed to talk about when the lines cross between tech and life. But we totally didn't pay attention to that because we got so excited about her ideas around idea flow and measuring development that we peppered her with questions about that for an hour. So we have to have Janelle back because it's time to talk about what really matters. Janelle is a software developer, system builder, speaker, entrepreneur. She's known for her willingness to question all the sacred cows of contemporary development methodology and indeed the very underpinnings of modern society. Janelle, welcome. Hi, thank you. So what are some of these topics that we don't talk about? So since we've been working on this AI project or emotional intelligence, I've you know been thinking a lot about this question of just where the lines cross and that our industry is about to go through, you know, a major scientific revolution. And there's, you know, all these questions about what's going to happen to our social support infrastructure. And the more I think about it, the more it looks like we're heading for essentially system collapse. And given that our industry, you know, is one introducing all these disruptions does that make us socially responsible for stepping up and doing something about it? So I've, I've been thinking a lot about those type of questions. It seems to me that we're, we're seeing an increasing number of stories in the media over the past several years about how tech companies are not taking social responsibility for their quote unquote disruptions of the systems that we have in place today. It kind of feels like a major tragedy of the commons type of effect where everyone feels kind of entitled to do their own thing, make money their own way, you know, run, you know, typical business. And then as everybody in the system does that same thing, we end up with sort of this destructive commons effect, which eventually builds up, but it's, it's like the code module that nobody owns, right? It's, it's everybody's problem, but it's nobody's problem and it affects all of us. And now that the system is kind of spinning out of control, What's spinning out of control? I guess I see a what I would describe as a number of negative feedback loops that are sort of reinforcing in vicious cycles. So when I think about how the dynamics of the system are, are shifting right now, those are the patterns that have me, I guess, the most concerned. That when I just sort of predict where those patterns lead, it takes me to relatively scary predictions right now. Can you give some concrete examples? I look at all of this from a lot of the perspective of software development and what's happening in our industry because, you know, software and connectivity and now AI is being put in everything, right? And as we go and build more and more of our, our infrastructure off of shared parts, we've got this sort of buildup of software in the industry that we all use is like 90% of our software is built from existing parts now, right? And if there's bugs in that software, if there's security vulnerabilities and things that in that software, then those things make us vulnerable um, since, you know, we're, we're putting this stuff in our bodies, in our cars, in our, all of our infrastructure. And so when I think about this, just from a risk perspective of public safety and human life and software being in everything, we used to have kind of a open source culture that was very central around optimizing the whole and chipping in and helping each other for the good of the industry. And it's not that that is gone. It's just there's been kind of like this generational shift in what that means. So the people that have built all this software are, you know, largely kind of aging and can't necessarily keep maintaining it um, anymore. And then this kind of new wave of engineers tends to be see themselves more as users as opposed to owners. And so the open source is largely depended on companies going and taking responsibility for those assets for things to get funding and move forward. And then companies start sort of 
shifting their perspective of looking at open source as a means to get people in their funnel, basically. And so as opposed to it being about the good of the whole, it becomes about how do we exploit this open source investment for our own gain. And it's, you know, perfectly reasonable to have that belief because these are sort of the social norms of business. But as soon as everyone starts doing that and nobody takes responsibility for the, you know, growing shared infrastructure, it all seems to kind of fall apart and nobody thinks it's their job to fix it. And so I I think about these problems kind of happening in our software industry as this uh, sort of negative feedback loop that's enforced by this kind of recoil and optimize for yourself effect that everybody simultaneously does. And the, you know, collective owned things sort of falling by the wayside and then becoming everybody's problems. And I sort of look at that and it looks to me similar, like some of the problems that are happening with just the structure of our socioeconomic system and arguing over what we ought to do in those same kind of differences in belief systems um, that are largely around entitlement and dominance and control type of sentiments, like a difference of practices versus principles kind of tearing apart the world and the the commons infrastructure that we all need, kind of going by the wayside in a similar kind of way. So Janelle, it kind of sounds to me like you're talking about why we do the things that we're doing. Like there was a generation of, of people who were building open source projects for the good of everybody. And then that started to shift when you had people who were thinking more so about their own particular uses and then how that could be maximized for their benefit. Is, is that right? Yeah. I've definitely so, seen that in terms of open source projects where companies are either hiring developers to work on open source to insert features that only that company needs or looking to like contract with people in the same sort of way or pressure the maintainers into adding features that really benefit only one consumer and that's that company. I feel like this is a problem that we keep having, especially in science, where you start out with the intention of maybe just curiosity or inquiry or trying to grow the knowledge base and you want to bring together the best minds and do something that's going to be great for everybody. And then once it matures a bit, there's always this financial incentive that comes in and then it starts to break off into like smaller little entities that are still working with others, but they're doing it more so from a different place. And then that can become really destructive. And it seems like we don't have a a good answer. And this is where I start looking at, like, we've got all of these software engineers that have all these skills with respect to building and designing um, and maintaining complex systems and designing things for agility and figuring out how to do all this abstract complex systems level modeling and stuff. And we've got this set of problems that we need to solve in the world that are very engineering focused right now, really. And that it's not a game anymore where, where it's about who's winning and losing an election. I mean, what we're talking about is infrastructure collapse of the socioeconomic system of our world, which in all likelihood will lead to war. What are the problems we need to fix? I, I'd say probably a, a big one is things like healthcare or, I mean, just basic social support, education kinds of things. So like the basic needs of just being able to operate and have a fair shake at life. Like you grow up, can I go to school? Can I get educated such that I can participate in the economy? I mean, like what are the basic functions that we need to survive and thrive as a species, and then how can we make that the baseline that we start on top of and provide that for all humans, essentially? Because I guess this is where I see another spinning out of control effect, I'd say, is is the wealth of the world concentrated in a very small population while everybody else, you know, we've got 4 billion plus people in, in deep poverty. And at least from my own experience, when I've seen humans suffering and in a lot of pain, they tend to do crazy stuff and come up with, you know, ways to survive. 
it's like we're creating all these problems with massive amounts of suffering in the world and then blaming the people that attack us. You know, I'm just thinking if I was growing up with that kind of suffering, how I might turn out. And I can hardly blame someone for, you know, raging as a way to survive. I mean, despite the effects, it's like our world is just filled with so much pain. And it's easy to sort of shrug it off because it's like it's always way over there. And we look at what's happening in our own world bubble and our problems seem significant. And I don't know. It's like it's easy to see yourself as the victim and stay in a pattern of self-optimizing, you know, whether it's at the individual level or at the entity level or at a family level, but somehow we have to shift as a global world, I think, to that opposite reflex of generosity and abundance and create a social support infrastructure system that is capable of supporting the people. And at least to that base level of being able to participate in the world. Like, I mean, I think, I think that that fundamental problem of basic social support needs to be solved and is largely a engineering problem, I think. And that's so, that so, social structure is being undermined in America by the current administration. The budget includes cuts for like really deep cuts for social services and what are referred to as entitlements, a word that I take exception to. And I think yeah. it's coming from this place of anti-science and anti-research. It's being framed as a question between supporting the poor versus incurring more debt, which really comes down to supporting the poor versus supporting the rich. As if we could make everyone's lives better by smushing down on half of us. Well, you know, Janelle, I would argue with you that it may not be the engineering that is the problem, because I think that what I notice happens is that when you start with a problem that seems really clearly uh, set, that it doesn't take long before you get to people being part of the issue. And I think for what you just described, one of the big problems is the belief structure that you have, like what you were saying about having it be possible to go to school and learn to participate in society, unfortunately, is a belief. And there are others who don't believe that you are entitled to that because you're human. They believe that you don't deserve things only by being born, that you have to have other things happen that you somehow must create, no matter your circumstance, or else you aren't entitled to it. And I think those types of clashes is part of the reason why we can't even get to solving the engineering problem because you have to start with a a foundation that's universal about what you should be doing. And there's a lot of conflict about what you should be doing. So it's a circle because like Coraline said, you don't have what you need to participate in the economy if you don't have healthcare and education. And it's participating in the economy that people define as the virtue which quote unquote, entitles you to healthcare and education. Yeah, it is a circle. I'm not, I'm not arguing that, but it's still coming from that. You have to believe that healthcare is a human right. And there are people who don't believe that. And if they don't believe that they're not going to participate in the, in the solution from the same place as you. I, the thing is though, I don't think they necessarily have to participate as long as they're not like, well, because these people don't deserve it, I will make sure and prevent that and the people that want to provide these services to them don't like as long as we don't force that the people that believe or see that as a human right have the power to go and build a system to potentially solve that problem i i agree it's just unfortunate that for some when you say something like healthcare is a human right for them that is an attack on their beliefs and they feel like they have to fight it and that's what they do and so then it creates this war which is not, we're still not solving the problem. We're still arguing about who's right. And in the meantime, there are people who are starving and dying who don't have to. But I think it's really hard to move forward when we don't have the tools, it seems, to even be able to deal with that type of ideological back and forth. Well, I think we do have the tools. It's just a matter of using tools. I mean, like one of the core principles that came out of Lean is this idea of blame the system rather than the people and that the system is usually responsible for 94% of the systemic causes of, of the dynamics and effects we see. And 
with this whole metaphorical lens that we can kind of examine the system and and revisit and view the dynamics of what's going on without assigning meaning to the dynamics we can just sort of observe them and then maybe come up with own uh, our own meetings and we can we can you know leave all of our metaphorical baggage to the side and come up with a new vocabulary to describe the effects we see i mean these are this is the the discipline of of science, which I know is political in itself, but these are the tools that we can use to get out of the current situation that we're in. As in, if our goal is to provide more wealth in the economy as a whole, maybe we could observe that systems that provide more health care to people result in more wealth in the economy as a whole? One of the challenges is trying to run experiments in the context of the existing system is there's so many effects at play. Exactly. That, the scientific method does not work when you're in the middle of a complex system. Yeah. And especially if you have a biased interest in a certain perspective, right? Janelle, is, is the parallel you're, you're making that our social infrastructure is decaying because of individual incentives and also our open source infrastructure is decaying that software in order to exist and participate as software you depend on runtimes and libraries and all of this open source stuff and if we don't take care of that then we're hurting all of us yeah i think these things are coupled in a variety of interesting ways and that metaphorically, they both are these sort of tragedy of the commons type effects that have to do with the same shift in mentality from this optimize the whole mindset of abundance, let's all chip in and help each other out kind of mindset shifting to I'm going to focus on myself and optimize for myself and I don't need to care for the good of the whole, whatever those people can fend for themselves. Like that same shift of mindset. I see happening in our industry seems metaphorically parallel to some of the shifts I think we're seeing when, which I think is response of fear and pain in response to a feeling of scarcity. Like, like if we're, yeah. if, if we're going to run out of resources and this feeling, you know, that, I mean, we're clearly in a lot of debt, right? I mean, there's, there's no disputing that. And so it seems reasonable to the people that are sort of, recoiling in that way to do so because of the circumstances. Likewise, shifting out of that mindset has these sort of out of control effects with it because, you know, that cycle feedback loop effect you were talking about where, where the poor keep getting poorer kind of thing. And it's easy to go, oh, well, it's not really the problem and look at this as a values thing. But at the same time, there's this overarching challenge with in order to solve the scarcity problem, we have to figure out how to solve energy. <laughs> There's all these problems that we need to be able to solve to actually stop being afraid. If we can get rid of the reasons to be afraid with respect to scarcity and create, you know, use our skills to create a world of abundance, then we can mitigate that fear, I think, and counter those same effects. And then I start thinking, well, if we could figure out how to solve our software problems, we could probably figure out how to solve these other problems too. <laughs> and then at the end of the day, the only thing really holding us back is working together. Yeah. When you're in a place of scarcity, like if you're hungry and you don't know what you're going to feed your kids, you cannot think about advancing the whole. That is not a thing. You have to think about right now and today. And yeah, fear and pain and all of those things can have an influence on you because you just you have to look out for yourself when you personally are in a place of scarcity. And like with software, if you're an, a developer of open source and you need to feed your family, you're going to take that corporate money to develop that particular feature that only helps that corporation. And you're not going to be spending all your time on vulnerabilities that would maximally help the community because you have to take care of yourself at that point. But if we remove that scarcity, and Lord knows we produce enough food for that, then we let people contribute to the whole. So it basically, you know, shifts things into a virtuous cycle. Yes. What do you call it in your book? The cycle of safety? The cycle of safety. Yeah. 
I think that's how I've been looking at the world is as, you know, looking at negative feedback loops, which is the cycle of chaos and positive feedback loops are the virtuous cycle or the cycle of safety. And after I started looking at idea flow this way of, you know, looking at these patterns in communication and problem solving and developing like this theory of mind, essentially based on all the ideas and research, I started like seeing these patterns of feedback loops everywhere. And then mentally I've been using biological metaphors to study organizations as an organism and like imagining how I, you know, build a hive mind brain, imagining like the organization is software or looking at the socioeconomic system as a biological organism and look at how shifts in emotional energy from just emotional training of like tribal effects in humanity and how that how those things affect the system and how I can think of like idea flow as a sort of abstract construct for understanding um, information flow and energy flow and people trying to solve the problems of survival. (laughs) I mean, you know, it gets down to that fundamental level of how are people surviving both physically and emotionally and coping with their suffering And what are the dynamics that result from that? And what is sort of the response that people are having as as they're shifting to a mindset of fear and scarcity, even when they're in a position of relative wealth by comparison, how that causes these major shifts in the overall system. I know it's like kind of everything is a metaphor, but, you know, you start looking at the feedback loops and and flows. And I look around at the people, like who has the skills to be able to go and build a abundance producing system. So what I'm looking at doing is basically building social support infrastructure into the economy. If we manage to conquer the generalized AI problem, which with our team now and, you know, where we are with our research so far, I have a a reasonable level of confidence that we'll be able to figure that out. Then you start thinking about, okay, well, we have, if we have infinite power, essentially, what are we going to do with it? And now it can do, and, you know, with emotional intelligence, we can build like mentorship AI, you know, to solve kind of automate education related problems. And I mean, there's, there's so much capability and potential that you start thinking, okay, well, if we could, build a support system for an abundant world to make people not have a need to be afraid and not have a need to recoil in safety or in, in fear, then maybe we could shift the world from a cycle of chaos to a cycle of safety. I'm curious, you know, did you ever read Neil Stevenson's The Diamond Age? I, uh, my husband uh, was like, you need to read this. I'm, I'm working through Snow Crash right now. What, what is the, the Diamond Age? Um, the Diamond Age is based on the premise that we are able to manufacture anything from raw carbon. So basically the means of production that we know today is totally gone because we now have machines that can produce any good or anything of value. Um, it's called the Diamond Age because diamonds are actually able to be manufactured and thus they lose their value. And it's about the social fallout of no longer needing a centralized control of the means of production. Ah. It's also a very wow. empowering story with a with a strong feminist message. And um Janelle, I think it'd be right up your alley, so you should definitely read that. I will definitely add it to my list. My my husband is like, you need to read this. So it it, it is on my list. I will bump it up a little further up on the list. So I found that a lot of people are like you have to read this book. Oh my, you know, cause especially since we're like getting in this realm where we're like, you know, talking about just all this futurist sci-fi stuff, just turns into these fun conversations. Like, uh, you know, one of the things we've been, we've been talking about is projected virtual reality. So the tier of consciousness that relates to dreaming and simulations in our mind and what it'll take code wise to be able to reproduce that capability. And as we've been talking about, you know, essentially a VR projection system, then we started thinking about, you know, we could do like software battle mages where, you know, you put a helmet on and you're in the office and you can like 
throw fireballs at your coworkers. <laughs> That'd be so much fun. So we've we've been having a lot of fun dreaming about you know all the just fun, really fun stuff we'll be able to build. I mean, too. I'm going to come back for a second to the topic of scarcity and point out that a lot of the resources that we as a society treat as scarce are actually artificially scarce. Someone mentioned food. We throw out enough food to feed everyone in America. I was recently in rural Virginia for a family funeral, unfortunately. And in the area where my parents live, the cable companies never ran cable. So they have to rely on satellite for their television and also for their internet. And their internet is capped at six gigabytes per month. And I tried to go about my daily life with like Twitter open and Slack open and checking Facebook and checking email. And I made us hit the cap. And at the point where the cap is hit, they reduce your bandwidth to about 28K per second. And the entire infrastructure of what's on my laptop crumbled and failed. And bandwidth is free. There's no reason to be metering bandwidth. And yet we're cutting people off in these rural areas where they're already isolated. And we're cutting them off from everything that allows us and we take for granted as a digital elite. Software is not designed for scarce bandwidth. And yet the majority of our country geographically has scarce bandwidth. Interesting. There are more things that it's really easy to take for granted on a day-to-day basis. <laughs> like even being able to do what we're doing right now. Yeah, there's no way in hell that my parents could ever get on Skype. During the day, they don't have a nearby cell tower. So if I needed to make a call, I needed to drive about 15 minutes away to get closer to the cell tower. And there's no reason for that, except it's not in the best interests of corporations to run the lines. Mm -hmm. It's frustrating because at the same time, I'm like sitting here thinking about all this stuff. I realize what a bubble of privilege I live in at the same time. And there's always things that I could be out there doing that I'm not. And so I, I spend a lot of time, you know, thinking about this stuff and what we can do. But, you know, at the same time, it's like I, you know, live in a nice house in a nice neighborhood and I have beautiful trees in my backyard and I've got internet. And it's so easy to take for granted all these like luxuries that in our lives that become transparent to us. Like they're all invisible despite all these, you know, beautiful things around us in our lives that we can focus on, you know, the awesomest restaurants in town and live in the awesome experience and all that. I mean, that becomes our obsession of life and feeling entitled to that of like, how dare anybody take away my life of entitlement kind of thing, which I get at the same time, like if we can figure out how to create enough social infrastructure support for just any human in the world, like not necessarily as thinking that it is a right to be human, that you you are entitled to these things. But I think it should be a goal that we ought to work for because our species would thrive as a whole if we had these capabilities. And so I think it makes sense to have as a goal or a target vision for a better world. I've noticed I suffer from cognitive dissonance of there's things about the world that are not okay, Uh, like that not everyone has enough food or that people are persecuted or afraid, and yet I'm not doing anything about them. Yeah. So I think that on one hand, when I read the news now, I try to just look at this as, okay, this is reality. In the fifth discipline, Peter Zengi says that if you can't see reality, then you can't change it. And that the creative tension of making something new in the world involves both having a vision and being able to see reality as it is and not like get caught up emotionally in some sort of blame circle of how terrible it is. Because it's been worse before, right? Surely it's been worse before. Sure. And yet people somehow emotionally dealt with that. So being able to see reality is valuable. And also, I think it's like with open source. As developers, we could work on any of these projects. We could do all the things, except we can't do all the things. We can do any one of the things. 
And we just have to hope that like randomly enough of us converge on the things that really need done and get super passionate about that, even though it's not like objectively that much more important than a thousand other things. There's some value in the randomness of where we put our focus. So where are we putting our focus so that we would say in the future, this is probably going to happen versus something that we're not focusing on that may not happen? I mean, I've been putting my focus pretty much on cracking the open mastery problem for, I mean, years I've been working on essentially, how do we make mastery level education free to the world? So I've been working on building out a system infrastructure for, you know, how do we support this as a business model that is like an operating business within the economy, as opposed to tied into government in any kind of way, where essentially, once we have the financial support for the thing, then it becomes kind of a community-run, open governance type of organization to build that support in. So we've got kind of a business that brings in money, and then we can traffic all that out to um, social support infrastructure type stuff, specifically around education. And I'm focusing on education because I think it's the linchpin for solving all the other problems. Really? How so? I think one of the main things that keeps people in a position of poverty is access to knowledge. And that we've talked about even just something as simple as internet bandwidth has an effect on what you have access to as well. But in terms of software skills, say we've got software skills are interesting because we don't have any raw materials that we use as, I mean, like we turn our ideas into tools, right? You know, it's not crafting things out of wood or bronze or whatever. We've got this full creative potential to dream up all these crazy things and sort of an infinite supply of dreaming that we could potentially do. I don't think we're ever going to run out of software systems that we could potentially write. And so I look at brain power essentially as the one unlimited resource that we have on our planet. And that if we could figure out how to support all these brains in terms of being able to contribute and create that any problems that we have in terms of food or energy or these other kinds of things that we could potentially solve with lots of collaborative brain power. And part of that is also being able to raise people's skills. So, I mean, I realize there's a number of constraints to break. That said, if we can give people skills that are of value that allow them to generate wealth within their environment, which I think software skills and software development skills definitely qualify as one of the best ways to you know, make money right now, that if we could figure out how to get the skills that are in the brains of the software engineers transferred to the masses, like automating that problem, that that's sort of the knowledge flow challenge that shifts everything else. So you I, um, plan to teach a computer to teach people computers? <laughs> Essentially, yeah. So it's kind of why we're focusing on mentorship AI. I've noticed you've talked about the tragedy of the comment a few times. And in my talk, um, The Broken Promise of Open Source, I talk about reframing the tragedy of the comments because like the modern tragedy of the comments, in my opinion, isn't about a scarcity of resources. As you pointed out, knowledge is infinite and software is infinite. What the scarcity is, is access. And I think that we have a real gatekeeping problem. We have software boot camps that require a $12,000 three-month investment in not working. And we're cutting people out of access to contribute to the internet economy, to contribute to improving their lives and their communities simply by erecting these barriers to entry and acting as gatekeepers to what is essentially a vast population of people who know the problems that they and their communities face and may be inspired to affect change in their community, but they're being hampered. They don't have the access they need to start solving those problems. The people that we're letting into the system are the privileged people. And the privileged people, whether due to lack of exposure or lack of empathy, are not going to be the ones solving the kind of social, economic, corporate problems that we're facing as a society. And that we've effectively got an idea flow problem. 
<laughs> so friction in the flow of ideas from one group of people to another. I, I, the other thing that I think is fundamentally interesting about you know this this distinction is it's not about money. Like if you think about this from a policy perspective that uh, and training perspective that you're going to somehow pay some people to train all these other people and put the ideas in their head. But if you just look at it from a human perspective, forget about who's being paid and currency and money flow and all of that kind of stuff, because you're never going to be able to you know, hire enough of those that would actually do that because they're in more valuable software jobs that are in higher in demand. We've got a idea flow problem, I mean, with respect to software skills specifically between software engineers and the people that need to teach. And then the access points, as you've mentioned, with these huge barriers of you know $12,000 for coding bootcamp, just to be able to cross that barrier creates a, I guess, bottleneck and flow that, that you know, reinforces those feedback loops. It's really interesting. When you were talking, Coraline, it reminded me of that movie 2012, where they have those arcs that have been created to withstand, you know, this apocalyptic stuff. And there's all these people who are trying to get on the arcs, but the arcs have already been like reserved. And so you have wealthy people who have like whole sections of the arcs that have living rooms and all this other high tech stuff. And then you have people who are just trying to survive who can't get on because they didn't reserve a room. And I feel like that's a metaphor for what tends to happen a lot is that there is a big problem and you get a lot of people together and they try to solve it and they do come up with a solution and that's awesome. And then when it's time to implement it, there's a few people who get access to it and then everybody else is still fighting. And it seems like this cycle that keeps happening for, it's like the same problem is still there even though you solved it. And part of it is just that there's that idea of who deserves to have it and who doesn't. Which I think is a broken question. I mean, if your question is coming down to who deserves it and who doesn't, it's anchored in the belief that that is a choice that has to be made. Yeah, which was absurd. You know, watching that movie, it's absurd because obviously these people want to live. Like, that's why the arts were created, so the people could live. So why would you make it something where you can pay to have a suite? It shouldn't even have been an option. But visualizing that reminded me of all the stuff we've been talking about. These things keep happening partly because there is this idea that you have to kind of prove you're worthy or have the ability to get through a particular gate in order to have access to something that you would think would be much more universal. And that is the whole problem with meritocracy in a nutshell. Very true. So I had a thought I wanted to run by y'all. I've been thinking a lot about one of the ideas in uh, the fifth discipline, or I think I might've gotten this out of the, the fifth discipline field book, but one of the ideas that Peter Sankey brings up is to think of a learning organization as this hybrid between a business and a school. And if you imagine that you're learning so much in the context of your job that it feels like you're going to, to school and mastery is just baked into part of your, your job, that the the union of those two systems is kind of sort of what a learning organization is or or characteristically would look like. And if you think about that system model, one of the interesting effects is there's a fundamental shift in the direction of money flow. So in the context of a business, a business pays employees, right? And in the context of a school, the students pay tuition to get an education. And if you put these systems in equilibrium so that currency flow is off the table and that all of the transactions between people occur at a point of equilibrium or, or barter, such that this is kind of where this idea of open mastery came from is, is finding that point in equilibrium and you design the system kind of around it. This is kind of what originally gave me the idea of you know, what if we built a software education support infrastructure into the industry? Ooh, 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 ooh. Because every healthy software team is a learning organization in the sense you just described. If you don't feel like you're constantly learning stuff every day, well, one, you're not going to be as happy. And also, you're not building and expanding the system the way we could be. 
this whole discussion about gates specifically has been fascinating and in, in looking at that as a different type of constraint, like a, a flow constraint, like a, a faucet turned off. It reminds oh, me yeah. of the faucet thing, right? <laughs> yeah, totally. The obvious one is uh, mercantilism, like medical schools only let in so many people per year. The supply of doctors is deliberately constrained so that they can continue to make a crap ton of money. Yeah. This is kind of one of one of the reasons I've been thinking a lot about going back like, you know, what would it mean to go back to barter systems? Like if we just, money has sort of developed this meaning of its own. Why do we even need barter? If we're in a place of abundance, then we can give to people for the joy of giving because our needs are met. So we don't need anything from them. It may be, at least my belief is that abundance will occur at a collective level, but transactional sharing will still need to occur because things there'll be stuff that has to move goods guess, will have to move and be exchanged i think but oh like physical objects yeah just like but it wouldn't necessarily have to be like like it, let's say we had sort of a ethereum based you know brand new currency system <laughs> that we we had you know some kind of means of exchange that wasn't money or wasn't tied to any of the existing currencies, it give you a way to sort of redefine the meaning of money in a way. And and one way to sort of zero out the meaning of money is to go back to a barter system and perhaps a barter system that operates, you know, on internet scale though, so that, you know, we can still trade at a global level. Yeah, that know. sounds like a pain. It's a interesting. I'm, I've been thinking a lot about, I mean, because one of the challenges with social support infrastructure is to just keep all the people busy and preoccupied doing something. (laughs) And the system right now, you basically have working associated with getting paid a wage such that you can get enough to afford these basic things that you need, right? And if we get to a place as a species that let's say we have enough overall abundance that we can support all the people doing, you know, at least basic level of stuff for that would be supportive as our collective. But that would mean that not everybody has to work. So then you've got this other problem of how do we keep everybody busy and out of trouble and generally having fun so they're not, you know, causing lots of problems for each other. And so kind of feel like one of the things we're going to need to do is like buy everyone a PS3. or ps4 i guess now or what, whatever you get you get what i'm saying it's like get everybody playing video games together well there were native american cultures who were like that you know prior to the europeans coming where everybody didn't work there were certain people who did and what they when they would go out which was normally like hunting or something they would just bring it back and everybody would share and then once you got older and you didn't have to do it anymore then you knew that there was going to be something for you because that was the nature of the way that they operated so it kind of helps to have a system, I think, which I know is part of what you've been talking about, that supports a certain value system. And in their case, they valued community. And so therefore, those who were able and, and capable, they went out and they did that hunting for everybody. And then people who had to, who, would, who couldn't do that, did other things so that everybody was taken care of. And it kind of would be nice if we could go back to something like that. One of the things I think is interesting about video games, which is one of the reasons I kind of bring it up, is we've got a lot of fairly well-established helping out the guild type behavior in the context of video games. And when we're in the real life world, we operate under one set of social norms and contracts. And then we go into a game world and we can immediately adjust those sort of behavioral characteristics that we interact with others with. And suddenly these communal behaviors are part of the social norm in this sort of alternative dream world culture. And so it, it makes me think that one of the most powerful ways we could potentially adapt culture at scale is through augmented reality type video games where, you know, you're in sort of a, a world that you can virtually decorate with, I don't know, whatever your happy dreams are, but that we can build a sort of guild communal system on top of the real world by turning it into a video game. I think that definitely has potential. It kind of makes me think of how people can argue about all kinds of things, but if you both root for the same sports team, then you can do that. (laughs) (laughs) And, And you're all good when you're talking about sports. Yeah. And 
like humans are capable of making complete context shifts like that and developing a new context, a new set of social norms in the context of this virtual world. And then if we can spend some time thinking about how to engineer a global cooperative through a video game, like the software industry already has a strong foundation of collaborative roots. I mean, largely based on kind of open source community, but also just our jobs are really hard. (laughs) And so we rely a lot on learning from each other to figure out how to do our ridiculously complex jobs. And so because of that, it's created a lot of just, I think, strength of community in the software industry that doesn't necessarily exist to that same degree other, other places. And a lot of software folks play video games too, right? I look at the software world and see all this potential in terms of both engineering capability, as well as people that care a lot and that our jobs are this creative craft or essentially love on code all day. And we get, you know, we've all been through this experience of being, you know, feeling stomped on by the business machine. So we have, you know, that deep bond as well. And I think metaphorically too, it becomes easier to see when other people are being stomped on because we know when it feels like ourselves even though we are generally a privileged bunch, we know what it's like to be controlled and dominated by others, I guess you could say. Well, that comes down to empathy. And I think empathy is a scarce resource for some reason, especially in the tech industry. It takes brain power. <laughs> it takes work. It's a skill to develop. It's not an innate ability. Yeah, yeah. I don't mean, I don't mean it takes IQ. I mean, it takes like conscious, rational thought which we have limited amounts of thinking as individuals. I know my brain gets full. What's exciting about software is that it's an opportunity to build a new world. But then in the same way, people can take advantage of it. And so that's the fight that you have going on where you have those who they just want their little corner and they want to build up their, you know, very expensive park place apartments and avenues. And so when you land on it, you got to pay all this money. And then there are other people who are just trying to build a world for everybody who doesn't have a place. And I think that can still happen. It's just, it seems like, especially in the last maybe five or 10 years, it's become like inundated with all these kind of money grubbing, greedy intentions instead of what it was when it first started, which was a place for people to communicate and a place for people to be able to put something new out there and see how people like it. Cause that's the beginning. And it's, I think incumbent on those who want to continue that to make sure that they stand their ground and keep it that way as much as possible and not allow for too many of the negative influences to become the norm. So now we're right back around to where we started with the the deterioration of open sources. It becomes the responsibility of companies instead of the pure joy of creation and sharing. Well, I mean, one thing I, I heard that was very encouraging to me was a lot of the modes that we have where we see or hear things like television and radio, those things were created in part to advertise to people and to put out a message. And that the internet is the first thing that is this pervasive that was not created for that reason. And so if we don't give it up, then there's a lot of potential for that to continue and to flourish into something good. Yeah, the internet, I think, is one of the main reasons I have hope right now. I mean, with respect to our ability to collaborate and work together and and make things happen that we wouldn't be able to do if we couldn't organize in the way that we are capable of now. And, you know, we spend so much of our time blaming other people for the ails and things that are wrong. And, and, you know, we work so hard and feel like, you know, we deserve anything coming to us because we've been working really hard. And when I listen to the way people talk on what, you know, from my perspective is like the other side of this wall where, you know, I, I see, you know, from my perspective, it looks like greed. And when I go to the other side of the wall and it's like, oh, these people see themselves as victims and see this as an entitlement of ownership and property. I'm like, huh. <laughs> and it's it's almost like stepping into like an alternative universe almost. And so like when I think back to at a system level, what kind of things need to change? Part of it is learning how to, you know, take a step back and blame the system as opposed to blaming each other. And rather than waiting for somebody else 
to somehow solve the problem and blame them for not solving the problem, like instead going, okay, well, what can we do to actually start, you know, collaborating and figure this stuff out? We're smart people. (laughs) We got mad skills, you know? And specifically, we have system building skills. Yeah. I keep coming back to something that one of my partners has talked about. She's from Sweden, which has a really great social support network and really great healthcare and really great social services. And she moved to San Francisco to work for a company. And she talks about how sad it makes her that on her way to work, she literally has to step over homeless people in the suite of San Francisco to get to her high paying job. And that is just so fucking tragic. Yeah. And, and then what do you, we have what no do you financial do? incentive to help those people out. So, you know, she gives charitably. Oh. She takes advantage of that Silicon Valley salary to give to organizations that are trying to make a difference. But I think she's in the minority of people who do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's easier to just push it out of your brain, you know, because there's so much stuff. There's so much suffering. There's so much tragedy that happens every single day. And we all deserve to be happy and enjoy our lives, right? And so it's like, why should I just sit here and be miserable when I could be doing something fun and enjoying my life? And and so it's like, you can't really blame people at the same time for, you know, doing what they're doing. But at the same time, it's so, it's so tragic. And so that's the thing that just bugs me is that I can see where people are coming from. And yet it feels so wrong to me at the same time. Everybody's happier when we're around other happy people. So we totally benefit from other people's happiness, but yet we can't individually make everyone happy. So we give up. It's just easier to feel helpless, right? (laughs) Which is where the systems thinking comes in. And I think we as software developers have a unique opportunity to understand systems thinking because we build complex systems and we build complex systems that we can change and study on a short timescale. So we have opportunities to learn about systems. And if we if we zoom out, we can appreciate that we live in a system and realize that we do affect it in small ways sometimes, or in big ways if you spend a lot of time on it, like activism. We're not helpless. We also can't do everything. So do something, not nothing, but also don't feel like it's your job to save the whole world. Like well, contributing to open source. <laughs> I I mean, I I think there's definitely some of that, but I I guess the other thing of why I brought up the tragedy of the commons things is I I think the nature of the type of problems that face us as a country and as a world right now are the type of problems that we can only solve through collaboration and that us all independently chipping in a little bit is just not going to cut it right now. And that if we want to fundamentally shift the trajectory of our world to a better place, it means shifting our mindset toward collaboration in a way that we've never really done before. That's a really good point. So we've talked about a lot and Janelle, you have a you have an amazing perspective on the issues that we've talked about and it's been a really great conversation. One of the things that I keep coming back to is access and gatekeeping. And I don't know what good it would do honestly, because we have this document that like lots and lots and lots of countries signed called the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. And among those human rights is access to healthcare. And the uncharitable among us points you to the fact that a person with no insurance can go to the emergency room and not be charged. But going to the emergency room is not a solution to being healthy. It's, it's crisis management. So even though the United States is a signatory of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, we don't treat healthcare as a fundamental human right. But I do wonder if it would be worth having a Universal Declaration of Digital Rights, in which we talk about things like cell phone access and internet access and access to education, such that if you wanted to contribute to software solutions to social problems, that you wouldn't have the barrier to entry um, that we have today. I don't know if that would be more of a gesture or something actionable, but I think I think we should start thinking about access to technology as a human right, given the fact that 
so much of the information and resources and opportunities that are available in the modern world rely on access to technology. Interesting. I've been thinking about a lot about the Gates idea too. That was actually what I was going to say. But one of the things I learned with systems thinking is to imagine flows as faucets that you can turn on and off and flows can fill and drain like a, like a bathtub. And so when you brought up the creation of gates and how it shuts down the flow of ideas or the, the access to the knowledge, I mean, like if you can just sort of imagine the world as, you know, where, where is all the knowledge in the world? You know, where does the knowledge flow? What are the gates that get in the way of the various knowledge flows? And how can we solve that problem? If you erase, you know, the entire system and just focus on those handful of key constraints, I think the other stuff will get so much easier. I, I missed part of the conversation, but I was thinking about the topic of money and how much it affects everything. And in, in kind of what I got out of it was to start thinking a little bit differently about the things that make us scared. I know oftentimes we talk about how to be inspired and how to try to find what you really want and how and where you want to contribute in the world by asking yourselves questions like, what would you do if you weren't afraid? Or if you had a billion dollars, what would you do? But in another context, I think we should also be asking, what is it that money doesn't, is not aiding or helping? Like, what would you do if money was not a factor in the sense of you don't need it to, to do it? You don't, it's not going to make money. What could actually be solved if it wasn't about money? It's a really interesting point. I've been thinking a lot about the meaning of money and how it's sort of developed its own meaning in itself, in just our minds, and how that ends up having such a huge effect on how we reason about our experiences in the world. And that if you erased money, how everything would change. Yeah, the framework of our thinking would be different. Yeah, It's been something that has been in the back of my mind since the financial crisis because our money is not real. It's not based on anything real, but it can take the whole world down, which is very scary. And it has so much power and we don't really have, and everything we do seems to be so controlled by it. But if we look at the system of knowledge flow, right? And we look at where the knowledge is in the world, the knowledge that has the most power and the software industry, the engineers of our industry have all the power in the world because we hold the knowledge that is capable of producing massive wealth for all the people that have the money. And so if you create a system that replaces money with a knowledge-based system, so as opposed to building up wealth, accumulating wealth in dollars, we're accumulating value in humans in our minds, in our capabilities, in our skills, in our knowledge. And that becomes the currency, if you will, our capability of being able to do stuff and produce true value. Then it gives us ultimately an opportunity to redefine the meaning of currency. We have to tear down capitalism in order for that to work. <laughs> <laughs> We're getting there. We're getting there. This conversation has been really abstract. And I still don't understand a lot of it. I don't understand all the parallels that Janelle sees, nor the hope that she sees. But I also feel that software has to hold the keys. It's the closest thing to magic we've ever had. Like Janelle said, it's an infinite supply of dreaming that we can make real. I feel like personally, I live in a place of great abundance and my needs are met. I get to dream and turn some of those dreams into reality. But I'm surrounded by a place of scarcity, a culture of scarcity, and I want this abundance for everyone. I've joined the community, Janelle's community at openmastery.org, and I'm totally going to learn more about this and see how I can contribute. You can join too. Well, thank you, Janelle, for an amazing conversation. I want to do a quick shout out to one of our patrons, Ilan Shredney, who pledged at the $10 level and remind people that we are 100% listener supported. If you enjoy the podcast and enjoy the conversations that we have and the guests that we have on, please go to patreon.com slash greater than code 
pledge at any level to gain access to our Slack community, which includes access to the panelists and guests to continue the conversations that we have on the podcast. We are also open to corporate sponsorship, so you can get in touch with us through the website about that. So Astrid, Jessica, Janelle, thank you so much for the wonderful conversation today. I'm looking forward to hearing um, what people think about the conversation we had and what kinds of calls to action they're going to take away from it. And really looking forward to that conversation on our Slack. So thank you everyone for listening. This has been episode 34 and we will talk to you again next week. Bye.